This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When Colorado legalized recreational marijuana just about five years ago, a key concern was how it would affect kids, whether they'd use it more, and what it would do to their brains and their futures. All that scientists have discovered about marijuana and young brains paints a scary picture. Fast forward to today, and there are still as many questions as answers. In Colorado, her study found legalization had no impact on marijuana use by teenagers. A new study in the Journal of the American Medical Association finds that some teens perceive pot as having a lower risk than in the past. The research can be contradictory. So we wanted to hear from teens themselves. What do they think about marijuana? CPR's Andrea Dukakis visited two schools, one in a wealthy suburb and one in the heart of Denver. I went to a school in North Denver first, about as urban as you can get. It's called Bruce Randolph School, and it has 6th through 12th graders. And to protect their identities, we didn't use names. What struck you most about what the kids said? Well, it was clear that in their community, marijuana is something they see all the time. I feel like it's thrown in our face so much. It's like everywhere we we go to. So, you know, it's more like a, how am I trying to say? It's more like it's there, so we're just intrigued with it more. So that's why we go use it. But I believe if it wasn't in our area so much as it is, then not a lot of students or ch- kids would use it. It is open, and pretty much everywhere you look on every block, there's a dispensary, and it, the whole state smells like weed. The area that I live in, I literally see it. There's, like, one down the street. When I'm going down the highway with my mom, there's, like, four down the highway, and, I'm like, it's literally everywhere. Two over here by the school. I can probably count five just in within a couple, like, four blocks. And that paints a very accurate picture. Marijuana is sold and grown all over the neighborhoods where they live and go to school. Again, that's in North Denver. In the suburbs where I went, recreational dispensaries aren't allowed. What do we actually know when it comes to kids and marijuana use? We know about the Healthy Kids Colorado survey that's done by the Colorado Department of Health and Environment. It goes out to middle and high schoolers every two years. The data shows that marijuana use has been nearly unchanged since it became legal. The caveat is that the last numbers are from 2015 and the 2017 numbers aren't out yet. At the same time, school suspensions and contacts between police and kids for marijuana-related issues have gone up. Okay, so they're getting in trouble more for marijuana, but students apparently say in surveys they're not using the drug more. Let's get back to those kids at Bruce Randolph in Denver. Uh, What else did they say? I spoke to about 10 students, mostly in high school. Many were black and Latino. The school is 99 percent minority, and most kids come from low-income families. I asked them how many had tried marijuana, and like smart teenagers, they turned the question back on me. Wait, before we continue with this question, so what is your opinion on marijuana? Do you look at marijuana as a bad thing, or do you look at it as a positive thing? Well, my job as a journalist is to try to look at all sides. And truthfully, the reason I like to do these things is I'm not sure. I kind of, like, because of the rap that it gets, I don't like to say that I've used it or use it or whatever because I don't want to be associated with something that's seen as, yeah, can potentially hold me down. But, like, I have anxiety and depression, and, I mean... It does make me feel better. It doesn't. It slows down my thinking because I very I overthink a lot of things, and I mean I my parents smoke, and when I have done it for myself, it is a 
calming experience. She's 15, by the way. Had most of the kids in the group tried marijuana? That was really hard to gauge. About four or five said they'd tried it or that they use it often. But I think because of the stigma that that girl just talked about, a few of the others didn't want to admit to it. Uh, Their overall view was that alcohol was more dangerous when it comes to things like driving, but that pot had a worse reputation. I mean, we just heard the 15-year-old say her parents use marijuana, too. Is that something you heard from the other kids? It came up a few few times. One 17-year-old told us her parents know she uses it for back pain. So I have back spasms and, you know, I have muscle pains. So I've been diagnosed with that. So um, the pain medications that they prescribed me wasn't working. So me and my mom got on the terms where, like, if it's helping you, you can use it. So that's what makes me even more comfortable about it. It calms me down. Um, I don't feel pain when I use it. But I try to make it to where it's not an everyday thing, to where I don't have to, where I don't need to use it. You know, I just use it when I'm in pain. Where is she getting the marijuana? She says she gets it from people she knows, not from her parents, and she's not old enough to get it from a medical dispensary. So these two teens we just heard from, one uses it for anxiety, the other one uses it for back pain. Right, and another told us she knows several people who use it for emotional problems. A lot of people just don't smoke for nothing. I feel like there's actually pain behind what they're smoking, because like alcohol, people don't, because my dad, he lost a dad, so he drinks. So, like, there's pain behind stuff that you're doing to numb something. There's actually pain. The kids had a lot to say when we talked about marijuana and race. One of the girls in the group who's African-American was sitting across from a boy who's white. And it was really a mature moment to watch when the two started talking about something that happened at school. The boy apparently brought marijuana to school, and the girl says adults there didn't see it as a big deal. I don't mean to put his business out there like that, but I feel like his consequences would be less than what I would get if I would have done it. I think if I would have done that, I probably would be suspended from school just because the way I look, who I am, and I don't see color, but they do. And I feel like even when I drop a pencil or step on somebody's toe, I still am viewed as a bad person because I do that. And I appreciate you using me because it helps people. And I do feel like you would have gotten different consequences just because of how this world is and how the world works just because you are an African-American and the way you look and because of the color of your skin. I do feel like they would have given you some different consequences. And I think even going beyond school, it's when a African-American is seen using it, it's more of a, oh, of course, they're using it. That's what they're supposed to do. But when a white person does it, I feel like it's more of a oh, they're cool, they're using something that isn't bad and they're just living their life and they're a hippie more than like a slacker or someone who doesn't do anything and is incompetent. I agree with them. It is different. Like they're saying a white person gets treated like, oh, they're using it for medical use and a Hispanic. I think they right away believe that they're using their own products because they're drug dealers right away. And that's not true. Not all Hispanics are drug dealers. This neighborhood is mostly Hispanic and African-Americans, so they right away believe, you know, everybody has weed in the house, that everybody's smoking it. 
There's a general consensus among the white and minority kids, I guess, that they're treated differently. Yes, and there's research that backs this up. Studies show arrest rates for Black and Latino kids have risen dramatically since legalization, even though in that state survey I mentioned, white and minority kids say they use pot at about the same rate. Bye, guys. Nice to meet you. We thank the kids, and next I headed to that suburban school where there actually aren't any dispensaries nearby. But students are still very familiar with pot, and the school is using marijuana tax money to teach about the drug. This conversation with teens about marijuana is part of a week-long series asking how has Colorado changed since the legalization of recreational marijuana. Let's rejoin our conversation with kids in Colorado about marijuana. This is part of a series this week looking at how cannabis has changed Colorado in the five years or so since the recreational stuff was legalized. All along, Governor John Hickenlooper has expressed his concern over the effects on teens. There's this risk that they could permanently diminish their long-term memory. Back in the day, candy cigarettes desensitized kids to the dangers of tobacco. And today, pot-infused gummy bears send the wrong message to our kids about marijuana. Kids should not ever get THC in their system. He's hardly alone, but even today, the facts aren't clear. A 2015 survey of Colorado middle and high school students found that legalization hadn't led to any significant rise in the number of kids who use marijuana. But in the last year, school suspensions related to the drug have gone up. Just before the school year ended, CPR's Andrea Dukakis visited two schools, and she's back now with word from a more suburban one. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Ryan. Okay, we had heard from those 6th through 12th graders at Bruce Randolph in North Denver, 99% minority student body there, most from low-income families. Where are we headed next? Then we went to talk with kids at Mesa Middle School in Castle Rock, south of Denver. The suburb doesn't have pot dispensaries, but kids there are very familiar with marijuana. A lot of people who do it stick up for it, and that's kind of a way you can tell who does it and who doesn't. Like, they kind of defend their actions for it and, like, defend what it does to you. And like we did at Bruce Randolph, we're not using the kids' names to protect their identities. These were mostly white, affluent kids, and in general, they were younger than the students at Bruce Randolph. A few said they had tried pot, more said they see it around, and many said they'd heard negative things about it. A lot of people will stick up for marijuana by saying, hey, it's grown, so it's got to be organic. Just because something's grown doesn't mean that it's safe. Just like because it's legal doesn't mean that you should do it. Sometimes if you do lots, lots of doses of marijuana, you can prevent brain development, which is vitally important for someone young. One middle schooler in the class told my producer, Rachel Estabrook, about someone he used to be close to. Um... I know one friend, I was really good friends with him at the beginning of the year, and then I knew he started, you know, smoking weed, and then he started to, like, be really tired at school and just show up late, and his grades went down, like, really fast, and he just really changed a lot. Was he in eighth grade, too? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was in eighth grade. Were you guys able to talk about that, or were you just kind of like, eh, it's not really me? Yeah, I just strayed away from that stuff. I didn't really care. Do you know why he started using? Yeah, both his parents did. 
and then you just caught along, I guess. Did they give it to him at home? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did it at his house with his parents. How was that to kind of lose your friend? Well, it was weird, but I mean, we still talk as friends, but not like good friends. You know, we don't talk about deep stuff, I guess, or whatever. My goodness, this has to be a theme now at, at both schools. Kids whose parents use marijuana and sometimes give it to them. Right. And the kids seem really affected by whether the adults around them are using. Like this other boy who says he hears from teachers that it's bad, but he sees the opposite from adults he looks up to. So I ski a lot and skiing in the mountains is definitely a culture for marijuana and it's kind of everywhere. Um, And I'm on a ski team as well. And on my ski team, there's um, some of my coaches, like they're daily users and Two of them have graduated Harvard, and they, they smoked marijuana throughout um, their time at Harvard. And they graduated Harvard with, like, a 3.9 GPA, and marijuana didn't really have an effect on them. Andre, you hinted earlier that this school has some kind of curriculum around marijuana. Right. This is a Douglas County school. They want to get out in front of this issue. So they applied for a state grant to teach middle school kids about the harms that marijuana can cause without the this is your brain on drugs message. That you kind know, of that, preachiness. Yeah, the egg frying in the pan. Um, the school is aware that since pot was legalized, kids don't see it as, as harmful as they used to, though there seems to be some difference between which kids perceive harm. A study found high schoolers in areas where there are dispensaries are more likely to think it's not harmful. Okay. Douglas County also wants kids to understand research that says the effects of the drug are worse on kids than adults. I'm not here to give you my opinions about marijuana. Um, I don't think that's effective and I don't think that's helpful for you. Teacher Katie Dorbin let us sit in on the class. We're going to talk about science today, what you know or think you know, um, or what you wonder. Dorbin goes through some of the research about marijuana. There is a high correlation between early and frequent use of marijuana and early onset of schizophrenia. And that hasn't just been uh, established in one study. It's been multiple studies that have shown that correlation. And um, anecdotally, I have a cousin that started to use marijuana when he was, you know, 13, 14 years old. Um, He was probably a daily or near daily user, and he developed schizophrenia very early in his life. And now he'll be in the care of his dad for the rest of his life. Dorbin's title is Counselor for Prevention. So there's a definite bent to this kind of curriculum. There was a message she really wanted to get across that we thought was interesting, that you're not alone if you don't want to use marijuana. So kids may get the impression at school that everybody's using and I have to use it to be cool. So I think the overall message is that when you're not using, you're standing among friends. She was trying to counter the peer pressure these students might feel. In other words, it wasn't just a message of marijuana could destroy your brain. The teacher or the district wanted to try to reach these kids on a different level, a social level. Yeah, and some kids called her out for that. So is these statistics that you're showing us, is it kind of picked and chosen from a big group of people? Or is this legitimately a widespread effect of marijuana? She says it's all backed up by research from psychiatrists and scientists like Dr. Daniel Amen. His research shows reduced blood flow to the brain, particularly in regions important for memory and learning. So most of Dr. Amen's research is thousands and thousands of participants. And, um, and like I said before, we need more longitudinal research. 
Anything else these kids told you that stands out, Andrea? Yes, and this floored me. The kids at the suburban school said marijuana isn't the issue anymore. They wanted to talk about vaping and jewels. They told us jewels are everywhere at school. There are these little USB-shaped devices with nicotine that you inhale. So I personally think that weed isn't the issue anymore because, like, I personally have seen firsthand and know of people who are using, like, mods and, like, jewels and stuff like that, vaping devices in- instead of, like, weed because it's way more accessible. Sure. So, like, I personally think that that's, weed really isn't the issue anymore because I, I, I haven't really seen anyone do it. But, like, I've seen people do this, and I feel like it's way more easy to get to and stuff like that. What are mods? It's like, it's like a vaping device. It's, yeah. yeah. But what's in the vaping device? Isn't it marijuana? It's nicotine. Oh, it's, it's nicotine. like. Okay. And then, like, a flavoring of juice or something yeah, like with that. With even more stuff. In yeah. And that correlates with reports that kids are more at risk of getting hooked on nicotine these days because of jewels and mods and other devices. This is a subject our health reporter, John Daly, has covered. And you can find his reporting at CPR.org. Andrea, thanks for your reporting. You're welcome. CPR's Andrea Dukakis, who along with Rachel Estabrook spoke with students at Mesa Middle School in Castle Rock. The curriculum there, by the way, is called the Marijuana Education Initiative, designed by two former teachers in Steamboat Springs. Earlier, we heard from students at Bruce Randolph School in Denver. All this week, we're seeing how cannabis has changed Colorado. Tomorrow, a visit to Denver's first and only licensed pot lounge, where people can consume cannabis and sip coffee. Many of the customers are literally just flying in. And some of the tourists, they come in with their bags from DIA, staying here, consuming, and going back to DIA because they had layover in Denver. That's tomorrow. A new theater experience in Denver isn't in the theater. It requires you to put on headphones and walk around the city following commands. We checked it out. Hey, how's it going? There's two of you? Three. Three? Okay, perfect. When you're ready, just head over here, take a right at the fence, and they'll be all set to go. Hi, my name is Aaron McMullen. I am a house manager at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. We are here at uh, 13th and Mariposa. The max amount of people that we have on each tour is 50. Um, they will be collecting a device transmitting sounds, uh, narrative, as well as music, and uh, many different tasks to be done along the way. Here are receivers for you. These are best on you somewhere secure, like to the outside of a pocket or a waistband. Okay. Your headphones will plug into the top of your receiver. I have no idea what I'm in for, by the way. <laughs> Hi, my name is Jeff Davidson. I'm from Evergreen. I hope to see, I don't know, Hidden Denver? Something you wouldn't normally see. I think I heard it was going to take us down some back alleys or something. So, yeah. Welcome to remote Denver. Thank you for coming all the way out here. Get up now. Become visible. I am Sasha Andreev, and I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Early on, we go past this pool, and there's all these people being instructed on, like, a swim class. And that was the first time I started thinking, are these people in on it? Because I'm looking at them, and they're looking back at me, and I feel like this is all a setup. My name is Chris Englert, and I live in Denver. 
it was great to be on 16th Street Mall and stop at Ryder Square and waltz. It was fun to waltz with strangers and just all of a sudden break into a group of people waltzing to some classical music. It was fantastic. Attention, please. And go. Even if you don't have a partner, you can turn around if you like. My name is Spencer Frame from Wheat Ridge, Colorado. I thought some of the major themes was uh, the inevitable death of a living organism versus the uh, immortal lifetime of technology and how it's constantly compared throughout the whole thing. And I found that really just intriguing. This is your final destination. On your way, take a deep breath. So that's the sound of a new walking tour called Remote Denver. It's put on by the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. And to fill us in, Charlie Miller is here. He is with Off Center. That's the theater company's experimental side. Hi, Charlie. Hi, thanks for having me. So in this production, there are no live actors. And it made me wonder if this is actually theater. Uh, I think that's a great question. And that's exactly what Off Center is exploring. We are committed to outside-of-the-box theatrical experiences uh, and challenging the definitions of theater. And so this was a perfect fit for us as a different type of experience that really puts the audience at the center and creates a lens through which you can view reality. Okay, the audience is put at the center, but actors are not, right? So is is it theater? How do you answer that question? Well, what I love about this piece is that it... it it inspires people to ask that question of oh. themselves. And so I'm not going to give you my answer. Okay. Um, but I, I consider it within the realm of theatrical experience. And that's the that's the work that Off Center is really excited to be producing in Denver. And in some ways, the participants, the audience, b- become performers, uh, waltzing in Ryder Square, for example. Yeah, what I think is cool about this experience is that it is both communal and and public, but also very individual. Oh. Everyone has their own headphones. And so you have this very intimate experience and personal experience, but then you're also part of this group of 50. And then there's also the public watching you move through. So there's many different levels, I think, that you experience it on, which makes it really thought-provoking and interesting. Are shy people mortified by this idea? Actually, this is one of the better experiential productions for an introvert, I think, um, as one myself. Sometimes you get nervous about being put on the spot in in more experiential work. But because you've got the safety of these headphones, you're sort of in your own little world. And I think it's it's a great opportunity to to go outside of your bubble a little bit, but still have the security of the horde, as we call it. The security of the horde. Okay, the sort of horde immunity. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is the brainchild of an experimental theater collective from Germany. I think the event has been in Hong Kong, Paris, New York. How tailored is it to each city? It's very tailored to each city because the route is totally unique. Um, The the general content of the show and, and the way that the computer voice interacts with you stays consistent from city to city from country to country but because in Denver the route is very different than it was um, in in Paris or in Tehran where they most recently were huh. um, it it is a very unique experience and and what I think is so wonderful about it is that it is hyper local but it's also part of this international 
thing. Okay, so there are some common threads from city to city, but give me an example of where I walk in Denver uh, and how the experience with these headphones is tailored to that. Well, I don't want to give away too much of the route because a lot of the fun is being on the journey and being surprised. Okay. But, for example, when we pass by Elitch's, they reference the roller coaster on your left and the city on your right. And so they're constantly tailoring it to where you're moving and to the specific city that you're in. Do you hope that it changes people's perception of their own city? Yes. I think that is one of my main goals is is to give people an experience that changes the way you think about the place that you live and takes you to some areas where you've been many times, but suddenly because of the voice talking to you, you're seeing it from a very different perspective. Did you have to get buy-in along the way from business owners, uh, property owners, something like that? Yeah, that was one of the great challenges of producing this experience was to get the permissions to take our group through all the different businesses and spaces, both public and private, where we go. Oh, I see. This is not just outside, in other words. Correct. I won't say more than that. (laughs) Oh, you're being so coy. Uh, I want to go back to this idea that there there are no actors. Certainly there were voices involved in the creation of the track, right? Of the audio track. Uh, It's actually all computer generated. It's all computer generated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do actors feel about this? Well, we employ hundreds of actors on our stages at at the DCPA, and and Off Center has a real commitment to working with local artists. And so um, this happens to be a project that doesn't feature any. It does feature a a very awesome technical crew that makes it all happen. And they are artists in their own right. Um, So we're excited to be kind of pushing the boundaries of of what theater may be and uh, and providing people different types of cultural experiences. You do integrate some actual recording, sound recording, sound effects recorded in Denver. Yeah. What's what's cool about it is in addition to hearing the voice and hearing music, as as you talked about, um, there is a 360 degree sound with the headphones. And so sometimes they will trick you and make you think that something is near you by really effective sound effects but it's it's all manufactured so you you think there's skateboarders behind you but it's actually just sound i think of of so many people walking around town looking at their phones and on headphones who are not a part of this walking tour and who are just uh totally blind to their environment oblivious if you will Mm -hmm. is there is there a danger of that here well this this experience makes you put your phone away and and encourages you to look at what's happening around you. And I think it's all about humans and relationship and their relationship with technology. And so it it, it sort of comments on the 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 phenomenon that you're describing. And it, it I think it really makes you think about how do I relate with my technology? How does artificial intelligence um, intersect with humanity and and what are the pros and cons and opportunities and challenges of those relationships just uh, lastly I wonder what the most surprising reaction has been from someone who has done the tour I think most people say that it wasn't what they expected because they didn't really know what to expect and I love that we can so 
uh, so that we can surprise people with this experience. And what's really fun for me is watching the public watch the tour. Yeah. Because it, it draws all sorts of responses from people who don't know what's going on or who happen upon a group of 50 suddenly watching them. And, you know, we've seen everything from someone dancing and causing a scene to someone bowing when the group applauds to people just <laughs> looking very puzzled. And we have little cards that we hand out um, to confused passersby so that they can know what's going on and we don't just leave it a complete mystery. Charlie, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Charlie Miller curates for the Denver Center's experimental branch known as Off Center and the Remote Denver Walking Tour runs through July 1st. A Denver task force is working out the details of one of the strictest green roof policies in the country. Last fall, voters approved a mandate for more plants on top of new and existing buildings of more than 25,000 square feet. The hope is that more native grasses and plants will cool the city and help manage stormwater runoff. CPR's Grace Hood explains. Standing at street level, you never know there's a massive roof garden at the top of this building on the Denver Community College campus. But up top on the Confluence Center, it's a different world. There are knee-high grasses native to Colorado and a variety of ground covers. We have sedums, which are over here. Andy Kreeth is a member of Denver's Green Roof Review Task Force. He also runs Green Roofs of Colorado, a company that builds and maintains urban gardens. He explains sedums are the workhorse of the green roof world. The low-lying creeper can survive almost any climate. It's found on green roofs across the world. They're ground cover. And so it's just an implementation of different heights of plants and different shapes of grass, so you get a whole feeling of a continuous system. Last November, Denver voters approved a green roof ordinance modeled after a Toronto law. Green roofs absorb heat. They also suck up water, slowing down stormwater that can flood the streets. But Denver's ordinance takes it a step further. New buildings have green roof requirements. Existing buildings can choose between a number of options when replacing a roof. We want to get these benefits for the city, but green roofs may not be the only way to do that. The owners of large commercial buildings have a few options. They must add a cool reflective roof surface and pick from one of five choices that include green roof space, but also solar panels or energy efficiency certification. Denver City Council member Mary Beth Sussman, who's a member of the task force, says it's a good compromise. In one estimate that the task force received was that there might be 90 percent of our existing buildings would not support a green roof. In other words, task force members think that getting existing buildings to do something is better than nothing. Feedback from the public and industry has been mixed. Some in the real estate industry think that the new plan could cause delays in roof replacements for existing buildings. But overall, that group seems favorable to change. It's a little cliche to say what you really want is a win-win. Tammy Dorr is also a member of the task force. She heads up the nonprofit business group Denver Downtown Partnership. Originally, the group opposed the Green Roof Ordinance. But since then, Dorr says negotiations have resulted in more favorable details. There is a policy on the table that the voters voted for. There is a path to implementation. How do you create an environment where you have eager compliance? Meantime, public comment criticizes the task force for giving developers too much leeway. They don't like the idea of green space away from the roof. Stephen Peck is president of Green Roofs for Healthy Cities, a Toronto-based organization that promotes green roofs across the country. Because at the end of the day, you want to make sure you have as much greenery 
in, on, and around your buildings in Denver as you can, because that's what's going to deliver the maximum amount of benefits. Peck says it is possible to have green spaces at ground level that can still curb the urban heat island effect. But not everything is created equal. For example, a rain garden can't soak up as much water as a green roof. One concern for Peck is that Denver's green roof policy may have grown too complex. There are too many choices. They're all green initiatives, but what the relative cost and benefit of all those initiatives might be is uh, something that has to be carefully considered. Standing between rows of native Colorado grasses, Andy Kreeth says he thinks the rules will become more refined over time. Hopefully the idea is to simplify it more. And I think that may happen through the final processes because this shouldn't be a complicated process. The task force will wrap up its recommendations later this week. The city council will begin weighing the proposal by the end of the month. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. Denver Health last month became the only hospital in the state and one of just a few in the country to offer vaginoplasty. It's a type of gender confirmation surgery, male to female, removing the penis and creating a vagina. Denver Health says there is pent-up demand for this procedure here. Ellie Klein is on the list for surgery. Hi, Ellie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And Dr. Chris Carey is here. He's a surgeon at Denver Health, recently trained to perform vaginoplasty. He began doing them just last month. Dr. Carey, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having us. Ellie, you are 29 years old, a software engineer in Denver. I understand your surgery is set for next month. Yes, sir. How are you feeling about it? So excited. I can't wait. You can't wait. Tell me what the path has been to this point. Um, It's been a lot of different uh, paperwork and filling things out and kind of getting notes. I had to get letters from different behavioral health people and saying that I really needed this and that they agreed to that. And then my insurance had a certain amount set out of I needed to do all of this. So then I just had to go through that list and do what my insurance was asking to get them to approve me and keep pushing forward for it. So insurance will cover some portion of this? Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's a lot of paperwork. Take me further back than that. When did you realize that you were going down a path uh, that might lead to a procedure like this? Um, I think part of me knew my whole life, but I think I really knew when... Uh, Caitlyn Jenner came out and all of that happened. It was just, she was talking and it was like, oh oh my God, like this is exactly how I feel. And Mm. like somebody speaking like my mind is thinking and it just really pushed me down that path. What specifically was Caitlyn Jenner saying that resonated with you? Just uh, the feelings and the thoughts that she had in her head and how her thought process went. And it was so close to mine that I was just, I felt that way of just somebody else was on the same page and it wasn't just, oh, it's not just me. And it's not just, I'm just different in my head. It's somebody else feels this way and it's it's relatable. Difference. What do you mean different? Just um, the way they felt and just the way that they were expressing themselves to the world and how how they were talking and just... How how do you think this will change your life? Um, I think it'll change it in a good way just by building my confidence and making me who I feel like I am in my head and making me just not have that hesitation and feel that that will to just be able to live my life and just experience it instead of stop myself because of physical limitations. Physical limitations. Talk to me just a bit about your relationship with your body so far, uh, because you you feel that there is a a disconnection between the physical form and how you feel on the inside. Do I have that right? Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like my head feels a certain way and then it's my body is different and then once I started down this path it was really noticeable once I started on hormones that it was just like 
oh, I just feel right. And it's just like this just fills this gap in my life that I had and I wasn't able, able to put my finger on. And at that point, it was just like I knew and it was just like, oh, this is this is what I need to do. Do you have a lot of support in your life from friends and family? I do. You do. Do you feel fortunate in, in that respect? Yes. I think that's not true for all transgender people. I think so too. Mm-hmm. And I am very fortunate for everything and every, all the support coming out and being able to like have this procedure done in my hometown. Or just It's just amazing that everybody can come out and show me support and can be here. And I don't have to do the pilgrimage to California to get this done kind of thing. The pilgrimage <laughs> to California. Uh, th- that is, the procedure had just not been offered here for the longest time. So Dr. Casey, uh, Denver Health already offered procedures for trans patients, testicle removal and so-called um, top surgeries for breasts. Now these vaginoplasties. And uh, the preferred term for this is gender confirmation surgery. Why did you want to be able to perform this procedure? I've been involved with the treatment of trans patients for about 30 years. Um, when I was in Oklahoma City, I managed a large number of patients who were undergoing transformation. Um, at that time, Dr. Stanley Biber was in Trinidad, Colorado, and he was the premier surgeon in the field. Yeah, let me, uh, let me the say world. that for many years, Trinidad, Colorado, in southern Colorado, was really known as the sex change capital of the world. That's correct. Dr. Biber was an amazing person. He was a combat surgeon in Korea who came back and was doing general surgery and general practice in Trinidad. A patient approached him um, and wanted the surgery. He read up about it and said, yes, I, I can do that and started doing the surgeries. Uh, he was a gifted surgeon, and Trinidad became the sex change capital of the world. It remained so for many years. Uh, Dr. Kerr, I think I have that right. And, and uh, Dr. Biber uh, eventually passed away. His, his practice was taken over by another doctor who I think you actually worked with as you were training at Denver Health. Yes. Yeah, so at, uh, toward the end of his career, Dr. Uh, Biber trained Dr. Marcy Bowers, uh, who is a gynecologist. Uh, <clears throat> and she came to Trinidad in the early 2000s and learned from Dr. Biber. And then uh, Dr. Bowers advanced the surgery. She developed some new surgical techniques um, and made some advancements in the performing of the surgery. Uh, she left Colorado in I believe around 2011 or 12, and went to San Francisco. And for that period of time, these vaginoplasties were simply not being offered in the state. That's correct. So b- back to that key question, which is why you wanted to be able to perform this procedure, and, and perhaps speak a bit to the demand that's in Metro Denver, Colorado, perhaps more broadly. About two years ago, Denver Health began to uh, expand and our care for LGBT community. Um, Our mission is to care for our patients, to care for the people of Denver. And we recognize that we had a large community of LGBTQ patients who we weren't meeting all of their needs. Uh, So we began to develop a center of excellence, um, multidisciplinary approach to care for that community. I got into this sort of um, almost by error. Uh, really? I, in the 
80s was doing a lot of research into uh, causes of preventable preterm birth and was looking at infections. I got started referred to me a lot of patients with infections that couldn't be cured. A lot of them had sexual dysfunctions, and I realized that I didn't know enough about that. So I went to Masters and Johnson's for a couple of training sessions, two weeks at a time, and realized I couldn't really learn what I needed to know that way. So my sex therapy partner and I did a two-year training program at the Menninger Institute in Topeka. Um, I was the only surgical person in our training groups. And how does this lead to the kinds of surgeries you're doing now? Well, people started referring patients to me who had medical or surgical problems. Um, And I started doing a lot of vaginal reconstructions. Um, And then I got started to get referred patients who had gender dysphoria. And so in the early 90s, I accumulated, like I said, a relatively large practice of patients with gender dysphoria that I was treating in Oklahoma. And that leads uh, eventually to Denver Health and uh, the procedure that you are performing now, these vaginoplasties. You say that that uh, this, this previous doctor had developed ways of Uh, advancing the surgery. And so maybe in layman's terms, could you explain uh, how how it works and and how far it's come in, in, you know, the the decades that it's been offered? So it is a a complex surgery with a lot of steps. Uh, The advancements have been made. Uh, Originally, the surgery was creation of of a neo-vagina, a new vagina, using skin from the scrotum and penis. Um, the advances have been made on more on the cosmetic side of creating uh, external genitalia that look more female and on nerve function preservation. So preserving the nerves and structures that create a clitoris. You basically want to have the, the look and the feel of sexual organs. That's correct. And, and that's where a lot of the advances have been made. Yes, and that's where Dr. Bowers had made a lot of advances. Hmm. How long will Ellie be on the table? Uh, the surgeries take as long as they take, but an average length of time for us now is about five hours. About five hours. Hmm. Does that make you nervous, Ellie? I don't think so. I think I know I'm in good hands, so I'm in, I'm ready for it. How have you been preparing for this? Just give us a sense of, of what's involved. So you said that you had to meet with behavioral health specialists, for instance. Why why that step? Help us understand that. Um, they wanted to make sure of that I, I needed what I wanted and that I wasn't making this big move and going to regret it and mm. have that. So they needed that reassurance. And then for the insurance coverage, it's kind of like they wanted that too to cover their butts to be able to say, yes, we need this. This is so fascinating. How do you prove to someone you won't regret something? You know, there's you just have to prove that it's what you want in your heart and that you you see it that way. So it was essentially I saw, so I got a note from my primary care doctor and then a note from my main counselor and then my insurance requested that I get a second opinion. So I saw another counselor to see that I really meant what I told the other people. So I see a third confirmation. Did that feel like just unnecessary jumping through hoops or the, the right approach? Um to me, it did feel like I was doing a lot of jumping through hoops and going a lot of ways, but I knew what the final end goal was, and I knew if I wanted it, I had to make this happen for myself, and I was going to be the one that made it happen. So I just pushed forward on it and kept going through it. I 
there are hard parts for it and I mean I can feel for anybody going through this process because there's just so much involved in it and so many different T's to cross and I's to dot that you have to get through. Dr. Carey, help me understand um, the the place that these surgeries have in the broader medical community. Perhaps the, the view that other doctors have of the work you do. Is this now considered mainstream medicine? Is this still... Um, considered out of the mainstream? Where Where is medicine on, on the view of this now? Well, certainly I think it's much more mainstream medicine than maybe 30 or 40 years ago. Uh-huh. Um, we've recognized for a long time that there are patients whose gender identity didn't match their bodies. And part of the advances had to be medical and surgical in treating the patients, but part of it had to be the acceptance that this is a real condition and that the patients need treatment. Uh, It's a difficult thing to not have your gender match your body. Every day when you wake up, you kind of, who am I, what am I, where am I today, begin to integrate your personality. A key part of that is, you know, my gender. And for patients whom that doesn't work, doesn't match, they know something's not right from about the age of three or four onward. And it's a suffering. It's very difficult for the patients. The surgery is a, a step in the transition. It's an important step. But it's only one step, and it's not the end step or the first step. Oh, that's an interesting point. So what... What are the other steps? So, uh, Ellie Klein, you wake up from that that surgical table, and then what? What's still ahead of you? Then, then I have to like kind of just learn the rest of the things I haven't really allowed myself to learn. Where it's just like I have to like then I can like like flirt and be able to go into like a relationship and be able to have these different experiences as a woman because I'm physically just a woman and I will be seen that way instead of just. Like oh well I I know what's down there and I know I don't want to I don't want to be in, like find myself in that situation and just kind of like oh like even if not a lot of people see that that's what I see and like I get out of the shower and I know it's there and it's yeah. that that reoccurring thought to myself of just like what's there and what I was and what I was born as and what my mind feels like I am and that disconnect between the two and I won't have that anymore. Thanks so much for sharing this with us. Um, it's in- incredibly personal, incredibly intimate, and I think it's it's a, a big deal that you speak so uh, frankly to us. I, I really am grateful for your time. Well, of course. Thank you. We heard from Dr. Chris Carey. He's Director of Obstetrics and Gynecology for Denver Health, and he works with the hospital's LGBT Center of Excellence. Denver Health last month became the only hospital in the state and one of just a few in the country to offer vaginoplasty. And Ellie Klein is a patient set to have the surgery next month. Finally today, singer-songwriter Ryan Adams, who's been nominated for a slew of Grammys over his career, apparently has a thing for Colorado. Leading up to his Red Rocks show tonight, he released surprise jingles about a fellow public radio station and about the alternative weekly Westward. That latter jingle even references longtime editor Patty Calhoun. Somewhere on Broadway They are typing away 
Making a magazine for Denver To give away Patricia, don't hurt me Please don't beat me down, Dave Falling in love with Colorado Now and always Now and always So then, in exchange for a jingle he wrote about Channel 7, that TV station let him do the weather. Okay, I don't know what I'm doing. So it looks like it's going to be 60... Storms in the east, dry, warm metro, as you can see here. Southeast winds, 10 to 15 miles an hour. For anybody that's super into the wind, there you go. You're hooked up right there. Sunrise is at 5.30 a.m., so get home early. (laughs) At his concerts, Ryan Adams is known for his off-the-cuff jams and humorous improv lyrics. Heck, he may even vamp about Red Rocks itself when he plays tonight. And in the meantime... We're keeping our fingers crossed for a Colorado Matters jingle next time he's in town.